Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis about Melchizedek being the priest of the Most High God and how that meant he was a man of prayer and how we can be that as well. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org and on iTunes. Our monthly resource is available for a donation of $30 or more. It's three books from Tom Cantor, Frequently Asked Questions, Prophecy and Fulfillments, and his testimony, all in one book. Call us now or after the program, 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Now here's Tom Cantor with today's teaching from Genesis. So Hebrews 7-2 is directing us to note his titles carefully, King of Righteousness, King of Peace. This person's called the King of Righteousness. This person's called the King of Peace. This is a royal title that ties two things together, righteousness and peace. And it's very important. Why? Because linking righteousness and peace together is full of meaning. It's, he's the King of Righteousness, King of Peace. It's the link between righteousness and peace that's so very important. Because the Bible has a lot to say about the link between righteousness and peace. The Bible describes something called the work of righteousness. The work of righteousness. And there are three things that are very important to understand about the work of righteousness. It's important to understand what it is, the work of righteousness. It's important to understand the result of it, the effect, what it accomplishes. And it's important to understand just when and where did this work occur. So now, we have the verse in Isaiah 53, because here in a very, very popular verse is really a description of the work of righteousness in Isaiah 53.5. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. That is a description of, of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a description of a work. It's a work that he did. We look at this verse and we say, well, I don't think it looks like a work. It looks like a victim. It looks like he's a victim. We say he was a victim of the Romans who tortured him with their machine, the cross, the crucifixion, and that's how we look at it on the surface. But he wasn't a victim. Why do we know he wasn't a victim? Because a victim does not want to die. And a victim's life is taken from them against his will. A victim is not the description of the Lord Jesus Christ because he described his death and he said in John 10, 17 through 18, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down as commandment have I received of my father. So words like that, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Those are not the words of a victim. Though What he's describing here was not a passive victim, but he's describing a work, a very hard work. He was a very hard worker, doing a very hard work. And so in Isaiah 53, 5, when it describes this, it's described him working very hard to be wounded for our transgressions. He was working very hard to be bruised for our iniquities. He was working very hard to be beaten uh, with stripes so that we could be healed. And and the work that he was doing is summed up and it's described in the verse Isaiah 53, 11, where it says, for he shall see, speaking of the father, shall see the travail of his soul 
and shall be satisfied. Then it says, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So what was the work that he was doing? It was, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. In other words, the work that the Lord Jesus Christ was doing, the righteous servant, he was justifying. It was a work of justifying. It was a hard job to justify you and me from our sins. And he did it. And that was the work that he was doing there, justification. And it was the work of justification. It's the same thing as the work of atonement. It's the work of atonement. So the general description of what he was doing is given to us in Romans 4, 5. He was justifying the ungodly. That's you and I. We're the ungodly. And his work was to justify us. It wasn't easy. We made it pretty hard on him. Because that's who we are. We're the ungodly. As it says in Romans 8, 33, it is God that justifieth. So it was God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, justifying. So the general description of his work is that he was justifying the ungodly. The exact details were given to us, actually in the end of that same verse, Isaiah 53, 11, where it says, he shall bear their iniquities. That's how he did it. And so in Isaiah 53, 12, when it describes that in more detail, he said he poured out his soul unto death. It doesn't say that his soul was poured out. He poured out his soul unto death. That was a hard job. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. That's the work of righteousness. That's the work of righteousness. It was making, the work of righteousness was to make the unrighteous righteous by dying for the sins of the unrighteous. That's the work of righteousness. Now, what's the end or the result of the work of righteousness? A few verses over, Isaiah 32, 7. Isaiah 32, 7, it says, The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Peace, quietness, assurance. That's what the effect is of all this. Peace and quietness from our sins as being in a state of a blessed assurance that all our sins have been paid for. Once a believer had a dream in which he dreamt that the devil had presented him with a list of horrible sins. In his dream, he looked, he saw the list, and he knew that he had done those things and that were all written there. He had done those things in his life. And in the dream, the believer said to the devil, is that all, devil? Is that all you have? Is that, is that, have, you got a, have you got another list? And, and in his dream, he says that which time the devil then presented the believer with an even longer list. And he looked that over and they were all true things, horrible things that he had done in his life. And then in the dream, the, the, the believer shouts to the devil, is that all? Is that all? Is that it? Is that it, devil? Do you have an, yet another list? And the devil presents even a longer list with more of these horrible sins that he had done in his life. And then, with that, the believer then says to the devil, all right, devil, write across every page, paid in full, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Okay? That's the work of righteousness. That's the work of righteousness when he made his blood to pay for all our sins and to cleanse us. And that's the effect of righteousness when he silenced the devil. He silences our own hearts that condemn us for our sins. That's quietness. That's assurance forever. Now, all a person has to do 
for the work of righteousness to be applied is just receive it. It's a gift. It's called in the Bible the gift of righteousness. In Romans 5.17 it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. And the next verse says, Therefore, as by the offense of one ju- judgment came upon all men to condemnation, so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So the work of righteousness was the Lord Jesus Christ making possible the gift of his righteousness to us. Isn't that wonderful? That's what he did. Where? At the cross. At the cross, was you, you know one way to think of the cross? The cross is where he went to the work of wrapping up the present for us, of the gift of his righteousness. So that when he dies, and the gift is all wrapped up, he with, with joy could say, here, here it is now, for you. Here's the gift of righteousness. This is from me to you. It's a free gift, my righteousness for you. All you have to do, reach out, meet my hand, take it. That's justification. That's how justification happens. Now, in fact, his commandment is then to take the gift. He doesn't just say, well, you know, if you want to, you can't. No, he actually commands, like we've seen before in Deuteronomy 39, where Moses said to the Jewish people, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. So he's got life and death and blessing and cursing. And then God stands back and he says, therefore, choose life. Choose this, choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live. So choose life, is God saying. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ as a gift of righteousness. And to obey that commandment brings the righteousness and the peace and the quietness and the assurance, like it says in Isaiah 48, 18. Oh, that thou hadst hearkened to my commandments. Then had thy peace been as a river and thy righteousness as the waves of the sea. So the work of righteousness was the work of atonement. The effect of righteousness is peace and quietness from condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. That took place where we've seen in the past at Mount Calvary, about 2,000 years ago. Mount Calvary is where that took place, where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. As it says in Psalm 85.10, mercy and truth, they reconciled, they kissed each other, they met together, and righteousness and peace kissed each other. Now, what we read more in verse 18 about Melchizedek is that he was the priest of the Most High God. What does it mean to say that Melchizedek was the priest of the Most High God? It means that Melchizedek was a man of prayer. What does it mean for a person to be a person of prayer, a man to be a man of prayer? You know, once at the, there's a big church in Boston Commons called the Park Street Church, and about a hundred years ago, the preacher got up on this particular Sunday, and he prayed the most impressive prayer. It was full of eloquence, so much so that the next day on Monday, the editorial in, in the paper read like this, It said, that was the most eloquent prayer ever prayed to a congregation. (laughs) (laughs) Now, when a person prays, you can tell 
if he's praying to be heard by others or if he's praying to be heard by God. You can really tell a man of prayer and by how he prays. You have a sense, when a man of prayer prays, you have a sense of two things. First, you have a sense he is really praying to God. And you can tell when a person prays to God because it sounds like he's on talking terms with God. God and him, they talk. And, and when a man of prayer prays, you say, he sounds like he's really talking to God. And, and the second thing that you impress with a man of prayer prays is that he is not just talking to God, but he's talking with God. The ease, the naturalness of how they talk with God makes it so that you can tell if the person is used to talking with God. So when a man of prayer prays, you say, he sounds like he talks to God a lot. And you, uh, you identify a man of prayer more by by, by the way he prays rather than the text of what he's praying. is is interesting. During the time of the greatest revivals here in the U.S., during the time when, a, when there was a deadness in the church and it was lifeless, you, we have in history recorded many prayer, texts of prayers. But during the time of the revivals, we don't have texts of prayers recorded. Now, I remember one time when, uh, when Pastor Jim and I were talking about something and I don't remember really, so don't ask me what it was we were talking about. All I remember is it wasn't as kosher as it should have been, whatever we were talking about. And, and, I, and I tell you the truth, like I said, I don't remember what it is. So, you know, what was it? I don't remember. But whatever it was, it was, we was better that we didn't say it. It was better left unsaid. And afterward, he prayed with his, his typical Bostonian accent. He said, Father, Father, cleanse our hearts. Hearts, you know. He almost needed a, an interpreter, to, but anyway. He said that, cleanse our, cleanse our hearts. What he, said, he said, Father, cleanse our hearts, is what he said. And it electrified me as I thought to myself, you know, the way he said that, it was the way he said that, cleanse our hearts. It sounded to me as that he was, he, he sounded so much as that he was on talking terms with God. And that, and that cleanse our hearts sounded to me like he said that before to God. And so it's the way that people pray when it transforms the prayer it transformed the prayer for me, cleansed my heart. So I always think about it. So when it says about Melchizedek in verse 18 that he was the priest of the Most High God, that was very refreshing for Abraham because here was a man of prayer that had appeared on the scene. And the bread and the wine, that refreshed Abraham's body. But the prayer that he, that he had and what he said, the blessing that he brought, that refreshed Abraham's soul. Now, that was so refreshing for Abraham that he gave these titles, these new titles for God. It was refreshing for Abraham to hear God called the God, the Most High God. And Abraham had just fought with kings, and now he's in the face of king of Sodom. And he says, and when Melchizedek says to Abraham that God was the Most High God, that's refreshing. I was refreshing for Abraham to think of Jehovah, Jehovah as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he calls him the Most High God. It was like like Melchizedek was just causing uh, Abraham's head to be lifted above all the things that disturbed him, least of which was not this king of Sodom with his proposal, and troubling him and saying, just Abraham, just take a break. Look and see God as the king of kings and lord of lords. You know, sometimes we get disturbed, we get troubled. You know, it's a great therapy book, Book of Revelation. The Book of Revelation, why? Because there... We read things that are so amazing. It's like when, in Deuteronomy when, uh, when Moses said, The Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, in Deuteronomy 
And that's that, but, and in, but in Revelation, we read about a sign on the vesture and on the thigh of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 19.16, he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's really uh, very refreshing. And so here, Abraham comes, and I mean Melchizedek comes, and he's got a new name for God. We've never seen this name before in the scriptures. It's the word El, Ale. That is a new name for God, Ale. Ale Elyon, God, the Most High God, the Most High God. But this word Ale is the first time that is used in scripture, and of course it can be used a lot after this. And the second title was also refreshing for Abraham to hear, the title called The Possessor of Heaven and Earth. Why is the possessor of heaven and earth? Because he made them. Because he created all things. He created heaven and earth. You know what's so horrible about evolution? It steals God's right of ownership. That's the issue. He owns all things and all creatures because he made all things. And he made all creatures. That's why we call them creatures. Because he's created them. That's why I like, I like the Creation Museum. In case you didn't notice. But um, I find it a very refreshing place to walk through. Why? Because it's got to be a place. There's got to be a place where God is honored just for being the creator, the great creator, and the museum is that place. That's what makes Psalm 24 such a refreshing psalm to read. We come off and it starts off and it says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. Now, it says about Abraham, he gave him tithes of all. Now, that little phrase at the end of verse 20 is very important. He gave him tithes of all. That was Abraham's response. That was his words without words to Melchizedek. That shows Abraham's response. You show me a person's tax return and the list of their charitable giving, and I'll tell you how much that person loves God. Tom, that was a very convicting thought on giving. Now, giving is a very mature part of us being a Christ follower, but many believers struggle also with other besetting sins, such as drinking alcohol. How should we as believers view liquor? You know, believers are special people. We're not just anybody. We're people that have been bought with a price. We're people who call the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of our lives. We're people who view the Bible as truth, God's truth. And God does give us direction about liquor in Proverbs 23, 30 through 35. It starts off in verse 30, and it says, They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. So here we have the scene here that wine or liquor draws in. They that tarry long at the wine. In other words, it's got this have another drink aspect to it. Then it says, they that go to seek mixed wine. And liquor has this this way of of captivating a person, or a person is working all day and he says, when I get home, I'm just going to have that wine and I'm going to feel so much better. I'm thinking about it. I'm looking forward to it. It says then in verse 31, look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it giveth his color in the cup, when it moveth itself aright. Verse 32, at the last... It biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder. So here we have two aspects of liquor described. A, an immediate effect that's described as the stingeth like an adder. An adder is one of the most poisonous snakes. The puff adder kills immediately in 
that part of the world. And so wine can have this immediate effect. And in other words, wine, liquor has an immediate effect on the body, an immediate, uh, immediate anesthetic effect. But it also has, as it's described here, a delayed effect. That's the biting like a serpent. A serpent injects its venom into, uh, in, into its subject and the venom begins to spread throughout the body and do its damaging effect. And so it is with liquor. It has a damaging effect. Just measure the liver enzymes of, of ALT and, and GPT, GPT and, and uh, SGOT, and you'll see those liver enzymes begin to rise as the liver begins to struggle to process the alcohol out of the body. It talks about in this verse, at the last. In other words, that it, it in the end, it makes a person like a fool to become drunk, makes a person to look foolish. His speech becomes slurred. He begins to sway. He loses control. It says here in verse 33, thine eyes shall behold strange women. Liquor has a tendency of opening the door to all kinds of sexual immorality. For us to have the gates on this aspect of our lives is a good thing, the gates of inhibition. And liquor breaks down those gates of inhibition. We don't know what was going on inside Noah's tent by by the whatever sexual immorality was taking place, but whatever Whatever it was, it wasn't good, and we don't need to know, and we don't want to know, but the point is, is that liquor breaks down the doors, the good doors that are there for us to not become involved in thinking and beholding, so to speak, strange women, in other words, thinking, pornographic thoughts, and so forth. Then it says, and thine heart shall utter perverse things. In other words, the heart is described to us in Jeremiah as the part within us that is deceitful and desperately wicked. And so what happens is that liquor causes the heart all of a sudden to come up with these shocking thoughts. Where did that come from? I didn't know that was within me. It's perverse things, and it happens deep within in the heart. And so that's what's meant here when it says, describes how liquor causes the heart to utter perverse verse things. Then it says in verse 34, yea, thou shalt be as he that lieth down in the midst of the sea. Who would ever lie down in the midst of the sea? You'll drown. So in other words, liquor causes you to to lose discretion, to lose caution. Caution gets thrown to the wind. And so a person who is drunk gets in a car and he's drunk and he drives over a cliff and kills himself. Why? Because he's drunk. He's like one who's lying down in the midst of the sea. Or he gets behind the wheel and he sees that van in front of him, but he plows right into that van and kills the people in the van. Why? Because liquor caused him to lie down in the midst of the sea. Then in verse 35, it says, that that the person who gets involved with the liquor says, they have stricken me, shalt thou say, and I was not sick. They have beaten me, and I felt it not. When shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. So it says, they have stricken me, and I wasn't sick. They have beaten me. A person who gets drunk afterward just feels beat up. He feels like he's, he feels like, 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 uh, thugs have worked him over and he's sore all over and especially his head. But he says, 
He says, but when it was happening, I felt it not. In other words, I didn't even know it was happening to me because that's what liquor does. Liquor is an anesthetic. And it, and, and in fact, it says that as we covered today that you give strong drink unto him that's ready to perish. In other words, it's the anesthetic. That, and that was what they used to give in the old days where they do a surgery. Here, have this big stiff drink of whiskey and this will get you through it. So you don't feel it. I felt it not. But afterward, uh, you feel it plenty. And then it says, when I when shall I awake? I will seek it yet again. So when it says, when shall I awake? It's a picture of someone who's gotten so drunk that they've just passed out. They just, uh, you know, and I remember when I went to Miami University as a freshman there and, and seeing all these kids, and at last, you know, someone would go buy them liquor, and, and they would just drink, drink, drink in the fraternities and sororities until they would just pass out. And then it says, uh, when shall I awake? It says, I will seek it yet again. So what's that a picture of? That's a picture of addiction. That's a picture of a person saying, I, well, it was so bad, but I want to do it again. I'll, that's addiction. And it, alcohol affects the body. We actually, uh, there are blood tests to, to show if a person is addicted. So all in all, this is not a good picture that liquor is painted for us in the Bible. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. And we've got the greatest offer that we've had for listeners with our monthly resource this month, Three Books into One, Frequently Asked Questions by Jewish People, Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and How a Jew Came to Know and Put His Trust in the Jewish Messiah. All three books from Tom Cantor. It's your monthly resource available to you for a donation of $30 or more. You can call us today at one 800 247-3051 to get your copy of these three books into one from Tom Cantor. 1-800-247-3051. It's a great monthly resource. 1-800-247-3051 or go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org for more information.